Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. As we announced, we're going to be looking at an Old Testament book this summer, at the book of Amos. So let's open our Bibles there now to the book of Amos. And while you're doing that, I'm going to stand here and watch you struggle to find it. Oh, I'm teasing. It's easy to find. It's wedged right between the books of Joel and Obadiah. Well, Amos is a rather short book set among other short books. In fact, because of the length relative to other books of prophecy, such as Isaiah and Jeremiah, these books are collectively known as the minor prophets. And last time we studied verse by verse to an Old Testament book, it was the book of Jonah, which was also one of the minor prophets. So I have a goal of preaching through all 12 of these minor prophets over the next few years. And the series we'll call, I think, Majoring on the Minors. Well, have you found it yet? Okay, let's read the first uh, couple of verses of Amos chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He said, the Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice, and the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dies, dries up. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of uh, his word. The title of the message this morning is A Lion Roars in Zion. Now that's taken from a combination of the verse that I just read and the book before in Joel where the Lord is pictured as a lion who has grasped his prey and is about to devour it. And so Amos is coming as a prophet declaring that the Lord is roaring and that his prey are the nations of the earth that he's about to judge, including, and surprisingly, the nation of Israel. And through the mouth of his appointed messenger, Amos, Jehovah is announcing his judgment on the sins of the nation of Israel, and it is a fearful sound. I'm told that the sound of a lion's roar in the wilderness can make a man's blood run cold. He has pursued his prey. He's preparing to consume it. He's announcing his sovereignty with a mighty roar. This is the image that Amos evokes in the introduction to the book that bears his name. Now our time is limited this morning because of the Lord's Supper, but I simply want to set the stage this week for what we're going to be studying throughout the summer. Like every book of the Bible, the hero of the book of Amos is God. After all, the Bible is God's story. However, in his sovereignty, God has chosen men like Amos to be the means through which God's revelation comes to man. He doesn't simply do that by uh, putting Amos into a catatonic state and using his arm as a, a robotic instrument. He uses Amos's background, his, his culture, his education, his particular point of view, and he brings that to bear through his sovereignty to the written word. So let's look at this man, Amos. He's a layman. By that I mean he is not a professional religious man. Uh, he's a farmer. In, in other words, in chapter 7, in verse 14, he describes himself this way. Then Amos replied to Amaziah, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I'm a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. And so when Amos says he's not a prophet, we know he is a prophet because 
Uh, he, he prophesied in the name of the Lord. What he means by that, he's not a part of the professional guild of prophets, those who have formal education. There used to be a number of schools of the prophets in and around Israel, and each of the prophets would have their own particular school, and they would teach their protégés, and then they would teach their protégés. And Amos didn't have that kind of formal pedigree. He uh, was a farmer. In fact, he says he was a shepherd and a tender of sycamore fruit. Now, sycamore fruit was sort of a poor man's fig. In fact, it was so common that only poor people bought it and ate it, and it's led many of us to believe that Amos was from that caste himself. He was not a, probably a wealthy person, though some commentators would claim that he was, that he was some sort of big time rancher, but more likely he was a manager of somebody else's property. But he was a man that God chose to use, unlikely as he was. Isn't it just like God to use people that we would not have picked? God does that a number of times. He chose David, the youngest of the brothers. He often, Paul said in the book of Corinthians, chooses that which is common to confound those who are uncommon. And so he's from this little village of Tekoa. Now Tekoa was a nondescript military outpost about five miles from Bethlehem. Nothing special about it. Now what was the setting? Well at that time, about 750 BC we believe, the kingdoms had been divided. 180 years or so before, in, in the 920s, upon the death of King Solomon, David's son, the northern tribes, you remember, refused to pledge allegiance to Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And from that point on, the nation was divided into the northern tribes, called Israel, and the southern tribes, called Judah. And in the north, they created a new capital city called Samaria, and in Judah, the south, they continued to worship in Jerusalem. Each kingdom had its own set of kings, and time was marked according to which king was on the throne in each of those kingdoms. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees this vision of the Lord high and lifted up on his throne in the temple, he introduces that chapter by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, right? And so that's how they mark time. Well, he does the same thing here back in Amos chapter 1. He says it was in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. So Uzziah was the king of Judah and Jeroboam, the king in Israel. And we know he was a contemporary of Isaiah's because he mentions Uzziah there. So we put all that together along with the fact that he said it was two years before the earthquake. Now you, you, you notice that he lived in an area that was known for its uh, seismographic action because he didn't say in the year of a earthquake, he said in the year of the earthquake. And if you've ever been a major earthquake, you know the difference between a earthquake and the earthquake. And the earthquake is mentioned in other books of the Bible. And so we can, with some degree of accuracy, narrow down the time frame that Amos ministered up in Israel to honor about the year 750 BC. So that is the setting. Here is this southern prophet crossing the territory over into the northern tribes and he's bringing this message of judgment. You can imagine today if someone with a southern accent like me went up to Boston and got on the street corner and said God's about to judge you people. How well that would be received. Well that was about as well as Amos was received in his day as well. Now we've seen the man, we've seen the setting and thirdly the theme. Now I asked you several weeks ago to go home and in preparation for this series to read the book of Amos through a few times. And I know some of you did that. 
And if you did that, you know that the theme of the book of Amos cannot be missed. It is crystal clear. The theme of Amos is judgment. Now, judgment as a genre of preaching was no more popular in 750 B.C. than it is in 2016 A.D. People didn't want to hear that God hated their sin. In fact, when he brought this message of judgment, it was almost universally rejected. The reason being is that the people didn't think God was angry with them at all. And there were some pretty good reasons why they would believe that. For example, it was a time of great economic prosperity. Now, they had had times of deprivation, but this particular time was a time of prosperity. The crops were good. There was money in the coffers. There were lots of building projects going on. There was a time of expansion, low unemployment. It was a time of peace with their enemies, Egypt and Syria. Their two neighbors who had traditionally been their enemies were on the decline. And so they were not able to come and force great taxes upon Israel. And so they were actually expanding. They were taking back some of the cities they had lost in previous wars. Time of territorial expansion. And on top of that, it was a time of great religious activity. They were going to church and they were making sacrifices and, and they were doing all of this in the name of Jehovah. The problem is he didn't tell them to do it. And unbeknownst to them, he was not pleased with their sacrifices or their great religious activity at all. And so when he comes and he announces God is displeased with you and he's about to judge you, they didn't want to believe it. In fact, their own religious leaders led the charge against Amos. Look again at Amos chapter 7. That verse that we read earlier, verse 14, is set in the context of a conversation that Amos is having with a man by the name of Amaziah. Amaziah was of that religious class of professionals. In fact, he's known as a priest of Bethel. And so he shows up in that city and he's preaching this message of judgment and Amaziah goes out to meet him to tell him, get out of here, we don't need you here, go home. And this is what he said, verse 10, then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all his words. For thus Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Then Amaziah said to Amos, go you seer, flee away to the land of Judah and there eat bread and there do your prophesying, but no longer prophesy at Bethel for it is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. Now that doesn't seem too offensive until you really get down between the lines. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, this is my territory. We've got enough men of God here. In fact, go back to Judah and eat your bread. You know what he's implying there? He's implying that Amos is a preacher for profit, like he was. Because probably most of the preachers that Amaziah knew were in it for the money, like he was. And so he said, look, this is my territory. If you want to make a living speaking for God, go do it where you're from in Judah. Make your living there. And so what does he do? He sends a message to the king and he tells on Amos and says, hey, king, you better do something about this guy. He's stirring up trouble. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that what happened to John the Baptist? He lost his head for that. Isn't that what happened to Paul with the religious leaders in Jerusalem? Isn't that how he ended up in a Roman prison? Isn't that exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus? People got nervous about this message and told the authorities you better do something about it. Well, that's exactly what Amaziah, Amaziah does. Now, 
How do you think Amos responds to that? Well, we don't have to wonder. Look at verse 14. Then Amos replied to Amaziah, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, meaning I'm not here to take your money, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now hear the word of the Lord. So what he said is this, I'm not in it for the money. I'm here for one reason only, the Lord told me to. I have a message from the Lord, and here's his message. You shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you speak against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife will become a harlot in the city. Your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be parceled up by a measuring line, and you yourself will die upon unclean soil. Moreover, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Now, he's speaking to Amaziah, a man claiming to be speaking for God. He says, Amaziah, here's what's going to happen. Your wife is going to become a prostitute. Your children are going to die, and you yourself are going to be exiled to a foreign land, and there you will die. Amos was not intimidated by pressure, was he? Either from the government or from other religious leaders. But I don't have to tell you that it's no different in our day today. People don't want to hear a message of judgment. They want to hear, the Bible says, smooth things. They want teachers who tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. If you don't believe that, listen to this quote from the pastor of the largest church in these United States. Here's his quote. Quote, God is good. He's for you. He's on your side. End quote. Now that doesn't sound heretical at first glance. In fact, there's a lot we could agree with until you understand that is the only message that he preaches. God is good. He's for you. He's on your side. Now, we can get behind at least the first sentence, right? God is good, right? But to say that God is for us, we better know that's the truth. Here's what Amos says. Now contrast what Amos says with what that pastor says. Amos 1-2. The Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice, and the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. He's preaching a message of judgment. Not that everything's going to be all right. Amos 2, 6 and 7. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Amos 3, 2, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Listen, God is good. In fact, he is so good, he alone can be called holy and just, and therefore he must punish sin. Do you think God loved Israel? Of course he did, and yet he punished their sin. God was not pleased with them. They're sinners, just like their enemies were sinners. Well, you say, well, what sins were they guilty of? Well, I'll tell you. He says they're guilty of greed and materialism. He says they're, they're guilty of doing injustice to the weak and the poor. They're guilty of drunkenness and idolatry and sexual immorality of, of the worst sort. And he says, you're blinded to that because you think the other people around you are worse. And then he says the most famous verse probably in the entire book of Amos. He says, woe to those who take their ease in Zion. Now that verse is so well known that it's become part of the English language. Someone who has their feet kicked up and their hands behind their head who think they have it on easy street. They've put their life in cruise control might be warned to say woe to those who take their ease in Zion. We may say that to a high school senior who after Christmas decides not to do their homework anymore. 
Woe to those who take their ease in Zion. This is what he's saying to Israel. Look, you're going to church, you're doing the sacrifices, but your life is a wreck. It's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He says, you give all the outward signs that you love me, but your heart is far from me, right? Such was with their ancestors here in the time of Amos. Now, fourthly, let's look at the structure of this book. It's nine chapters long, but it's divided into a series of sermons and visions. Chapter one and two, he has his first sermon, and then he has a number of other sermons to different localities in and around Israel. And the beginning at the second half of the book, he has a series of visions, signs that the Lord would give him. But first, let's look at this sermon here in chapter one and two. Amos does an incredible thing here in this sermon. He's like an eagle circling his prey, okay? He's setting them up. And he starts off by declaring that God's going to punish Syria. Now, Syria was their sworn enemy, but Syria was a long ways away. And then he describes all the sins of Syria. Can you imagine? He comes up and he says, look, I have a message from God. God's about to punish your enemies. Do you think people would get behind that? And they were saying, amen, brother. Yeah, those Syrians, boy, they're terrible. You tell them. And then he begins to get a little closer. And in every verse, he declares God's judgment on one of their enemies. And each time he declares it, he's getting a little closer geographically to them. Now, let's look at it. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord. Chapter 1, we're in. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, that's Syria, and for four, I will not revoke its punishments because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. They were known for their brutality and warfare. We'll come back to this next week. I just want to see the structure. And so they're going, yeah, God's going to punish Syria. Verse 6, for three transgressions of Gaza, another one of their enemies, I will not revoke its punishment. He goes on, verse uh, 9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four. That's the Phoenicians. That's getting real close to them now. Verse 11, for, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom. That's their cousins. I'm going to punish them. Verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites. I'm going to punish them. Now he comes to chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, verse 1, for three transgressions of Moabite, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Verse 4, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of who? Judah. That's their brothers. There's the guys they've uh, had disagreements with for 200 years. They're separate nations, but they're still their cousins and brothers. They're probably getting a little concerned at this point, but at least it's not them and then he comes to verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Why? Because they sell the righteous for money. They take bribes. The needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble. They're unjust. And a man and a father resort to the same girl. They're immoral. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out on every altar their idolaters. And so you see this indictment he brings against Israel. But did you see how he set them up? He said, those guys are bad out there, and these guys are bad a little closer. But guess what? You're just like them. And if God's going to punish their sin, he's surely going to punish your sins as well. And then when he finishes with this series of sermons, he begins to have some visions of what the Lord's going to do in this punishment. The first vision is a vision of locust. 
Now, you know, locusts were a feared thing in the ancient world because if the locusts came in and destroyed the crops, the people went hungry and there was famine. And here's what he saw. He saw locusts who ate, he says, in the second mowing. When they would harvest, the first fruits had to go to the king. It was the way of taxing the people. And then they had what was left. And so the king had his taxes and then the locusts come. Guess what? The people are starving. And that's exactly said what's going to happen to you. And then he had a vision of a consuming fire. And you know that in the Bible, fire is often associated with God's judgment. When the fire falls, God is coming in judgment. And that happened. And then he has an unusual vision, a vision of a plumb line. Now a plumb line is a carpenter's tool. It's a string with a weight on one end that a carpenter would hold up next to the corner of a building to make sure it was in alignment. And what was God saying to Israel? I'm going to hold up my law against you as a nation to see if you're lining up with it. And guess what? They didn't. And he says, because of that, I'm going to bring judgment. And then he had one more vision. And uh, that vision was the basket of summer fruit. One of Charles Spurgeon's most famous sermons was called A Basket of Summer Fruit. It was taken from Amos chapter 8. The basket of summer fruit was fully ripened. It was fairly bursting with flavor. And it was not a good thing because what he's comparing Israel to is a basket of summer fruit that has been picked and it's fully ripe and it's ready to devour and God's about to devour you. He's about to send judgment. Your sin is filled up, filled up to the brim and there's no more room and God must now punish. Here's the point of Amos. Several things. Number one, God is patient. Now what you would not know if you didn't know the history is that God didn't suddenly blow a fuse one day and start judging people willy-nilly. God's not like that, is he? The Bible says he's slow to anger. He's forbearing. He's patient. But what we need to know also is that God's patience one day runs out, doesn't it? He must punish sin ultimately, and that's what's happened. For 180 years since the two kingdoms had divided, God has been patient, sending warning after warning, prophet after prophet, and what do they do? They ignore them. They kill the prophets. What did Jesus say? Woe to you, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to you. How many times I would have gathered you as a mother hen does your, her brood, but you would not. God is patient. But secondly, God will judge sin. A lot of people in our culture have the idea that times are pretty good, right? All that fighting, it's fighting, but it's over there. And we've got problems in our country, but unemployment's on its way down. The Dow Jones is on its way up. A lot of people have hope for the future. But uh, the truth is, none of that is any indication that God's pleased with us, right? Now, we have to be careful we're not saying that God, uh, second chosen people is the United States. That's not true. But what we have to admit is that God has blessed this nation and this culture in an incredible way. And the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. And our cultures are eerily similar that so many people today have religious activity, but they have their feet on their desk, their hands behind their head, and they're taking their ease in Zion and they might believe that one day God is going to judge sin, but they don't believe God's going to judge their sin. 
And here he says in clear, plain, written word, God will judge even the sins of his people. He, in fact, he holds his own people to a greater level of accountability. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was walking through those villages of Judea? He said, woe to you. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. These were cities of, of Judea. If the same miracles that I performed here had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. He says, I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon for you. What he's saying is this. For those who have heard the gospel week after week, year after year, and continue to reject Jesus, your punishment ultimately for your sin will be greater than the worst sinner you can imagine who never heard the gospel. And it caused me to say a few years ago, and I'm going to repeat it again today, because you know I like quoting myself. <laughs> but it's serious. I believe one of the most dangerous places in the world to be today is Keller, Texas. Here's what I mean. We have churches on every corner. We have access to every preacher who's ever preached on the internet. We have radio, we have television, we have freedom to go wherever we want to worship. And yet your neighbors and mine by and large are in the bed this morning and not worshiping the Lord. And one of the most dangerous places to be is in a place where the gospel is preached day after day and yet people say, no thanks. That's what was happening in Israel. They had access to the law. They had access to prophets. They had access to the truth. And they said, we're okay. And God said, you're not okay. And one day I'm going to bring judgment. But here is the final point of Amos, as is the final point of the Bible. God will forgive. Even right in the middle, let's look at chapter 5, the very middle chapter of the book of Amos, right in the middle of his pronouncements of judgment, verse 4 Amos chapter 5. Mark this in your Bible. Amos 5, 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me that you may, what? Live. That is the message today. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God has made a way, not multiple ways. He's made one way by which your sins can be forgiven. That is through faith in the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross. That's what we've come to celebrate here with the Lord's Supper. What Christ did, the heinousness of our sin was overwhelmed by his grace at the cross. Christ died in our place and whoever will put their faith and trust in him and despair of their own personal righteousness, he will save. What about you, dear friend? Are you like those Israelites? Have you taken your ease in Zion? Have you put it in spiritual neutral, coasting, believing you don't have anything to fear? God's gonna judge sin, but not yours. Don't believe it. God will ultimately judge every person's sin. He'll either judge it through the cross, through Jesus, or you'll face it alone. Don't face it alone. Everyone in this room who's born again is a sinner saved by the grace of God. If you'll call upon his name today, He'll hear you, he'll forgive you, he'll save you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this reminder through the Old Testament book of Amos. And Lord, as we prepare to study it, I pray you would soften our hearts and our minds. Lord, that we would not be stubborn. Give us ears to hear. Lord, help us to be doers of this word. 
Father, we live in a world that's in a dangerous place because so many are confident that they have nothing to fear. In fact, many are very religious, Lord, and yet they don't believe the truth. So Father, I pray you'd open blind eyes, even in this church. I pray, Lord, you would reveal yourself clearly, reveal the gospel clearly to the lost today. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would take these messages and they would uh, have their intended effect, Lord, through the Spirit of bringing about conviction of sin, righteous, and judgment. Lord, save the lost. And for those of us who are saved, Lord, may it have the effect of causing us to be thankful for our salvation and more zealous to take this urgent message to our neighbors, our family, and indeed to a lost and dying world. Lord, would you do great things through it, not for my sake, but for Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.